Hello, true crime friends. Welcome back to another episode of True Crime in Academia. I am your host, Mary DePippi. First of all, I hope you're having a good start to your week. If not, that sucks and I completely understand. I hope this week gets better for both of us, you know? So for this week's case, the victim isn't a college student. They are actually the killer. Um... These kind of cases tend to make me just sad just because, you know, if the killer hadn't, like, murdered anyone, they could just be starting their adult life, gaining independence, saving up money for a house, you know, but obviously they can't because, in this case, this person robbed two people of their lives. So, you know, I mean, and I'm not sympathizing with the killer or any killer for that matter. You know, I'm just saying, it just, it sucks when the killer is particularly young, I think. I mean, obviously it sucks that they did what they did, like I said, but, you know, it's just, you know, I feel bad for the life that they could have had, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Um, But this is also a more recent case as well, so we're gonna see how, like... COVID might have contributed, you know, because obviously COVID has affected all of our mental states, being shut in and not being able to see anyone. So I think it's just going to be interesting that, to see that. So that's enough of my ramblings. Let's get into it. Around 9 a.m. on May 22nd, 2020, police were called to the home of 62-year-old Ted Demers. Demers and another man who at this time has chosen to remain anonymous, had both been stabbed with a samurai sword. While the unarmed, unnamed man survived, Ted Demers was not so lucky. According to the processing technician from the medical examiner's office, Demers suffered chop-like injuries to his head, torso, and limbs. The lone survivor told police that they encountered the suspect after Demers offered to drive him back to the suspect's abandoned motorcycle. The nameless survivor said that he was coming to Demers' aid when he was attacked. The attacker was 23-year-old Peter Manfredonia. (laughs) No good deed goes unpunished, huh? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to laugh. It's just uncomfortable. You know, I mean, it just, it's, this irks my soul. You know, when someone is killed because their kindness and overall goodness is just being taken advantage of. I mean, Mr. Demers was just trying to help Peter Manfredonia out, it seems. You know, it's not like he was confrontational in in any sort of way. He's just offered to help this guy out and gets killed in the process. Um, You know, according to some of the sources, it seemed that Demers noticed Peter walking around the road and seemed lost. So that's why he offered to help, which again, you know... He just was totally taken advantage of, you know, he was going to, like I said, he was going to give him a ride so that, you know, maybe he could get in touch with someone and hopefully, you know, this abandoned motorcycle situation can be resolved. 
But, you know, for whatever reason, this guy Peter decided to kill Demers, which with the samurai sword is a very interesting weapon choice. But when I was doing the research for this, it turns out that many people close to Peter knew that he was interested in them and owned at least one himself, which pretty interesting. That's an interesting hobby or thing to want to collect. I mean, they're pretty badass looking. I'm not going to lie, but the fact that he used it to kill someone is a little... Hmm. So who is Peter Manfredonia? Peter Manfredonia was born on February 2nd, 24 years ago at this point. I have looked everywhere to try and find his birthday. There's only one site that listed it as February 2nd, but they didn't actually give the year, and I suck at math. So for any of you math buffs out there, you can maybe figure out what year he was born. He graduated from Newtown High School before attending the University of Connecticut, or UConn, as it's informally called. There, he studied engineering and business management. Not much is known about his early life other than he was an athlete and was accepted into honors programs at UConn. Statements made by his family suggest that he was raised in a happy and loving home. Now, given his like interest in sports and being in honors programs and things like that, these are definitely traits more of someone who is well-adjusted and children who are growing up in a loving home. Generally, from the research that I've done, most children who are abused or, you know, whether it's physically, emotionally, or psychologically, things like that, or just are don't have a good home life, generally they tend to be more withdrawn from school activities and grade-wise, they generally don't do so well. So, and the only reason I bring um, bring that up is because, again, through my research, I've noticed that a lot of criminals, especially murderers, tend to have pretty troubled childhoods. Um, one exception that I've come across so far is Ted Bundy, aside from Peter Manfredonia. So, again, he, he doesn't necessarily fit... <laughs> the psychological profile of most killers just because, you know, he is doing well. He is in sports. Clearly he's quite smart. He's in honors programs. So again, it's just, it's not a typical psychological profile of someone who kills people. Now there are a few circumstances regarding what was going on around the time that he went on this crime spree, but I will discuss that later. All in due time, my dearies, all in due time. But I do think that those other factors could have maybe contributed. But like I said, we'll get to it. The main struggle that Peter faced was mental health issues. And these included suicidal and homicidal ideations. He had been seeking help from multiple physicians, but it doesn't seem that they found a successful treatment for him, which is sad. I'm not going to attempt to diagnose him in any way, but just from, again, the research that I've done and the psychology, some of the psychology classes I've I have taken in college, it kind of seems like he has some sort of depression 
again, I'm not trying to diagnose him. I'm just trying to um, go over what possible ailments could be um, that he could have. Um, so yeah, I think depression is definitely one. Um, I mean, as far as the suicidal ideations go, you know, sadly, most people who have suicidal ideations are severely depressed. When it comes to the homicidal ideations, it seems like there's a lot of unaddressed anger. Again, that's usually just from the patterns I have seen in my research. I think there, I mean, there's possible it could be some sort of bipolar issues. I'd also be curious to know if Peter sustained any head trauma in his childhood, like severe brain trauma or TBI, traumatic brain injury, as it's sometimes called. Generally, hits that hard to the head can severely alter your mental state. But again, there's no mention of this, and I'm not trying to diagnose. I'm just speculating. Just because it do- he doesn't, like I said, he doesn't fit the profile of someone who would do this. But I do suspect that his mental state probably had a lot to do with why he just snapped and committed these crimes. This was also the beginning of like the COVID lockdowns and everything all over the country. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, COVID has affected a lot of people, not just physically from being sick, but also mentally from being in quarantine and, you know, not being able to visit loved ones or come in contact with certain loved ones because of their risk, things like that. So I can't imagine that he there wouldn't have been any effect on his mental state, considering he already was going through some uh, mental health issues. So I'm sure that had some sort of, or that just attributed to his mental uh, health altogether. The next day, Demer- after Demers' murder, at the unknown Good Samaritan's attack, police were notified of a home invasion in which one man was held captive in his home, but not harmed. The man said that Peter broke into his home using a ladder. The 73-year-old victim, who remains anonymous, because you should be allowed to be anonymous if you want to be, personally, he stated that he was awoken around 5.15 in the morning to a man standing over him with a gun to his head. The man identified this looming figure as a guy in his early 20s wearing a black t-shirt, black sweatpants, and was barefoot and dirty like he had just been in the woods. When he recalled the incident, the man explained that Peter had a blank look on his face and told him to put his hands behind his back. When the older victim obliged, he was then restrained with zip ties and duct tape and... He placed the duct tape on his eyes and around his head, which a little excessive, I think, but okay. I mean, this is literally one of my biggest fears to like wake up with someone hovering. I mean, just to ha- wake up and have anyone hovering over you, weapon or no weapon, is ugh, fucking creepy. But the fact that he had a gun to his head, I mean, I can't imagine how terrified he must have been. I mean, the whole situation, I mean, you're just in this vulnerable state because you're, you know, you're in bed, you're asleep. You have no reaction time or really any time to process what's happening when you first wake up, you know? I mean, I always say that I'm not a real functioning person until I've had my coffee. So I can't even imagine, like, I, you know, it would take me a few seconds to process. 
what was happening. I'd be like, wait, what? But I would definitely be horrified because, again, that's just one of my biggest fears. So although this was a very horrific experience for the man, he did say that Peter wasn't cruel. Peter actually helped him to the bathroom twice, offered him food, gave him his medications, and later he eventually removed the duct tape so, you know, he could watch TV with this guy. The victim told police that he tried to make small talk with Peter, who at this point had told him his name was Rick. After several hours, the victim's phone rang. It was a neighbor just checking in because, again, you know, with Demers' murder, everyone knew that there was this dangerous person on the loose. So he was just call- the neighbor was just calling to check in and let him know what was going on. So Peter allowed the man to answer his phone, but he had it on speaker and he told him exactly what to say. When the man asked Peter about the murder, Peter had told, explained to him that he hadn't slept for five days and that he just flipped. He also explained to the man that he had planned on having two good weeks before ending it all either in a shootout, the death penalty, or life in prison. The next day at 5.15 a.m., the invader, or Peter, left the man's house and told him that he would be taking one of his cars along with his guns and pistols. The car was later found abandoned near a local state park. Guys, let me tell you about my friend Mandy. She makes some of the most beautiful crocheted goods and decorations I have truly ever seen. The holidays are just around the corner, so you're either going to be looking for that super unique gift or that super special ornament or decoration for your home. Do yourself a favor. Go to Mandy Made It on Facebook and Instagram. That's M-A-N-D-E-E, Made It, on Facebook and Instagram, and slide into her DMs. Trust me, you are just going to love everything she has to offer. I already have a few pumpkins from her. I have a really nice crocheted headband that keeps me warm in the winter. And of course, my very, very favorite Coraline doll. So if you're looking for cool decorations or if you're looking for that super special gift, go to Mandy Made It on Facebook and Instagram to order now. So I feel like at this point we're starting to see Peter's true nature. I mean, obviously, killing Demers was horrible and formidable. But again, I wish I could understand his mental state at the time of, you know, the murder and then the assault. Because his encounter with the man that he's holding captive is completely different. I mean, obviously, he's holding him hostage and that's not okay. But he's not torturing him or treating him in the way that you know, you would expect most captives to be treated. Uh, You know, either, like I said, they're, you know, people who are held captive are either tortured or they're just put in isolation separate from the captor. But the fact that Peter does, like, the bare minimum to protect this guy, um, like, by giving him his medicine and feeding him and things like that, I just think that it shows that there's something actually, like, good in him. And had he not flipped, 
he might have been okay. And, and by okay, I mean not having, you know, committed murder. But what I thought was interesting was that he mentions that he hadn't slept in five days. Which, obviously, that's not good for anyone. I mean, I don't know. I can't say for sure how this was affecting him. But I do know that, like, after the first three days, your cognitive function starts to decrease. And your motor skills start to decrease significantly. And just in general, I'm sure he was probably irritable as hell. I mean, if I didn't sleep for five days, hell. If I didn't get enough hours of sleep, let alone having not slept for five days, I definitely would have snapped. I love sleep, so I can't imagine not having had it for five days. Obviously, like I said, it's not healthy, not just physically, but for mentally as well. Um, you know, we're also kind of starting to see that he planned on doing this. You know, it may have been premeditated by a few days, but he still planned to, I mean, and he may not have planned out every single thing that he was going to do and to who he was going to do it to, but he definitely planned to fuck some shit up, it seems. You know, I mean, the fact that he would assume that it would end in a shootout, the death penalty, you know, or life in prison just says that he planned on doing some really serious shit, you know? Clearly he planned on murdering people. Clearly he planned on hurting people in general. You know, enough to the point where, you know, he would think that the police would kill him via shootout. So, again, we see that he planned this, and this fits in with his suicidal ideations, so... I don't know, I guess, and again, I don't know for sure, but it just seems like maybe he felt like he would just give in to his ideations, finally, which is sad, because again, that was something that he definitely struggled with, and, you know, it's just really a shame that he had to succumb to that. Peter then made his way to the home of 23-year-old Nicholas Isel. I think that's how you pronounce the last name. If not, I'm sorry. But this was around 6 a.m. The two struggled, and Peter was able to shoot Nicholas in the head, killing him. Now, the only connection between the two men was that Nicholas went to high school with Peter, and Nicholas's girlfriend was sleeping in bed when she was awoken by the struggle. She attempted to call the police, but Peter knocked the phone out of her hand. He then forced her into her own car, a Volkswagen Jetta, and drove her to New York and then down to New Jersey. Now, she admitted that she considered crashing the car, but she also feared that it would cost her her life. Nicholas's body was eventually found at 11 a.m. by his father that day, and thankfully his girlfriend was found unharmed in Patterson, New Jersey, after Peter abandoned the car and her. So it is very obvious, I mean, he's just, Peter's just losing all self-control here, and I don't think, again, like I said, I don't, he may have planned to, like I said, do some really horrible things, but I don't think he has each step planned out. It just, his behavior just seems very erratic, and it seems that the people are, he's targeting are random. Um, you know, he definitely fits the profile of a serial, or not a serial, but a spree killer or criminal, um, just because 
not just because that there's no apparent rhyme or reason as far as how he's choosing his victims, but it's just because he's doing it in such a quick succession of each other. You know, it's not like he's doing committing one crime and then waiting and plotting and then committing another crime. He's doing this all within very quick succession and very early in the morning. I have to give Nick's girlfriend, Nicholas's girlfriend some credit because, you know, I don't know how she kept her cool and didn't crash the car. I think that would have been, like, my first instinct as well, to just crash the car. But, you know, thankfully, her life was not nearly in as much danger as Demers or her boyfriend's. Um, but, I mean, after witnessing your boyfriend get killed and then being kidnapped, I don't think I would be so level-headed. Um... I can't say that I would have done the same. Like I said, I'm pretty sure I would have been a fucking mess and I would have crashed the damn car just to try, you know? I don't know that I would have had the the level of patience that she did to try and wait and see how it would play out. Peter was able to evade police capture for six days. Six days! And he led them across four state lines. From Connecticut... Peter was then seen in Pennsylvania, in the New York, New Jersey, and then finally in Maryland, where he was finally captured and taken into police custody. Before he was captured, an attorney for his parents made a statement to him saying, you know, your whole family loves you. Nobody wants any harm to come to you. You know, it's time to let the healing process begin. It's time to surrender. Police on the scene when he was arrested reported that Peter was calm, and no force was needed to take him into custody, which, of course, he was taking in. He was taken in peacefully. He's white. Peter's white. And I, you know, for anyone who's like, she's playing the race card, she's playing the race card. It's a card that is played all of the time. I highly doubt that if, you know, Peter was black, he would have made it, that he would be awaiting trial right now. And I hate to say that, but again, it's the facts. You know, we see these extreme disparities in how people are taken into custody based off of the color of their skin. And no one wants to admit it, but it's just, it's so fucking obvious. I mean, you can't deny it. And it's deplorable. It's fucking disgusting. And it shouldn't be happening, but it is. And, you know, I don't think that it's going to change honestly, until we start seriously vetting police officers for racial, racial biases, honestly. The Superior Court issued a $7 million bail, because, yeah, he killed two fucking people, injured another, and technically kidnapped two, so I mean, you can imagine. I'm shocked the bail wasn't higher, but he is being indicted for two counts of first-degree murder, attempted murder, first-degree kidnapping, Home invasion and burglary and assault. It's a lengthy list. His attorney requested that Peter be put on suicide watch given, you know, the state of his mental health, which makes sense. At this time, no motive has been given other than, you know, I mean, and he said, I don't know why I did it. He just said that he just flipped. Peter pleaded not guilty to the charges um, he was in court on October 29th for the murder of Nicholas and was scheduled in November for the murder of Demers. 
Because his crimes took place in different districts, his cases are being tried based off of where they committed, and that's typical. I have not been able to find any other information as to what happened at either of these court dates. I think it most likely was just a hearing, and all he had to do was submit a plea. But I have also not been able to find any other information regarding any future court dates. Um, But I will keep you guys posted. If I find out anything more later on. I do want to take the time to discuss some possible contributing factors. You know how I talked about that in the beginning? That I think really just affected his mental state. Not there's ever, obviously there's never a good reason to kill someone. I'm just, again, just saying there might have been contributing factors that led to his extremely diminished mental state. Um, So like I said, you know, we already know that he was struggling from mental health issues, which as someone who suffers from mental illness themselves, you know, I understand firsthand how hard that can be. On my worst days, it feels like there is a war going on in my brain where it's like my very emotional and, you know, irrational side is fighting with my logical side. And... It's really hard because, you know, your brain knows the best ways to hurt you. So, you know, it can just be really hard some days. Really, really fucking hard. You know, and I feel lucky that I'm as self-aware as I am. um, Just because I feel like it helps when I'm trying to talk my brain down from wanting to be upset about something that isn't necessary or, you know, I'm overreacting or... You know, it's a lot of policing your own emotions and, you know, it's, it's really fucking hard. So, I mean, I, I, like I said, I, I, I can understand how difficult that must have been for him. Um, and as if that wasn't bad enough, it seems that four days before his spree, his girlfriend broke up with him. So he's already experiencing you know, a mental health break. Now he has to deal with, like, a broken heart on top of that. And it does seem that Ted Demers, the first victim, lived near his ex. So that could be a reason as to why he was in the area. Again, I don't think he had any real motive for killing Demers. Like, I don't think he had... I I highly doubt he even knew him. Sadly, I just think Demers was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And again... No good deed goes unpunished. (laughs) Another factor, I think, for this was that a month prior to Peter's crimes, so Peter's crimes took place in May, about um, sometime in April, his father was being investigated and charged with second-degree sexual assault, two counts of risk of injury to a minor, and two counts of providing alcohol to a minor. Now, his father, Robert, has not confirmed or denied that he's committed these charges. Um, He was confronted by the parent of one of these women, well, girls, because they're minors. And he didn't seem to deny it. So, it seems very likely that he did commit these crimes. And I can't imagine that that wouldn't have had some sort of effect on Peter's mental state. Um... Again, I think deep down, he might, Peter might be, or could have been, a good person. Um, 
you know, had he not killed people. But, you know, I can't, like I said, I can't imagine that that wouldn't have bothered him. And I'm sure he probably was angry at his father. Um, you know, I've always wondered if they're like the quote unquote criminal mind is passed down genetically. I know that there are some like mental illnesses or disorders that can be passed down that contribute to that. But it seems like that when it comes to, like I said, the criminal mind being passed down genetically, it seems like it's mixed as far as the research is concerned. Um, you know, I don't think necessarily that Robert passed anything down to Peter, but, you know, I think it could be something that could be explored, possibly. But overall, I just think this combination of factors made Peter flip or made him snap. Again, I'm not saying that what he did was right. I'm not condoning it, obviously. But again, I do think that all of the combination of his girlfriend breaking up with him, his the crimes that his father committed, you know, his decreasing mental state, you know, but then you got COVID thrown in the mix of everything and everyone's in quarantine and everybody's scared to go out and things like that, you know, on top of having his mental issues. So, you know, I can see how that would put a ton of stress on a person. And, you know, we all handle stress differently. And I think, like I said, I just think that combination of things was just too much for him. And again, I feel like I need to say this every friggin' time. I'm not saying what he did was right. What he did was absolutely wrong and horrible. He never should have done that. But like I said, I think this is more of a case of just Again, someone being under so much mental stress that they don't, and not knowing what to do, which again is really sad. So, this is my, I guess this is also my reminder, you know, to tell you guys and myself to make sure you're practicing self care and really focused on your mental health when you need to be, you know. Just like when you get a cold, you know, you, or when you get the flu, you go to the doctor, you get medicine. You figure it out. The same has to be done with your brain. So that is all I have for you this week. Like I said, I hope you guys take time for your mental health. Take time for self-care. I wish you all a great rest of your week. Please stay safe out there with COVID and everything. I know it's starting to get worse again. Oh, Lord, I feel like we're never getting out of it. But wear your masks. Wash your hands. Do all the things. And I will talk to you guys next week. True Crime in Academia is an Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast. Members of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room team include Andrew Rimby, Executive Director, Mary DePippi, Chief Contributor, and Jaron Usta, Marketing Director. To support the Ivory Tower Boiler Room and its podcasts like True Crime in Academia, go to our website, www ivorytowerboilerroom.com and click on donate. A special thank you to Anne-Sophie Anderson, composer and performer of the song Scorpio that you heard in the introduction. As always, thank you for your support.